I still smile when I remember back to the time I helped my son drive to his first job. He had finished college, and since he went to college where I worked, <laughs> he was still around. He preferred to be in the dorm, but enjoy mom's home cooking, you know how that, that is, uh, have his level of independence. But he was taking his first job, and so I was going to help him drive his car in the U-Haul from northern, northeast Wisconsin, uh, way up at the end of the map, uh, all the way down to South Carolina. And so as we're planning this, uh, he's packing things up, deciding what he can take and move into his small apartment and start his job. I was thinking of my speech, um, what I was going to tell him on our drive down there. Now, Paul, you had that with Noah, didn't you? You have a speech? How many of you had the speech prepared for your kids? So I had this speech prepared to answer all of life's questions that presently he wasn't asking. And what I, what I found is, you know, your kids grow up, they, they start this level of independence. And it's tough on you, it's tough on them. It's just kind of tough. And, and if it works well, they become independent, and then you come back to having a really tight, close relationship, which uh, fortunately we've been able to enjoy with our kids. I don't think I ever really gave that speech, but I did rehearse it in my mind. I think Diane reminded me, you know, the fact that we tell this to each other, there is nothing you can tell him that you haven't already said a thousand times. <laughs> and so that's true. They don't ask a lot of questions, but when they get to college or their first job or they're away from home for a while, they will start asking questions. The first one is, could you send me some money? <laughs> <laughs> the, the second one is, could you help me with my taxes and insurance? <laughs> and paperwork. I don't know how to do this. The third question is, Mom, can you send me your recipe? <laughs> that was probably our most frequent one from the boys, not from Sarah. And then way down the line, they'll call up and ask for some advice. <laughs> so that's just the way relationships work. Now the reason I share that is we begin this text you read through those first four verses, and I imagine some of you are thinking, where is he going to go with this? <laughs> because this just seems like a, a complete shift of gears from Paul. We go from one of the most powerful, magnificent, beautiful statements on the resurrection of Christ and the impact upon our lives to, you say, well, he just has miscellaneous reminders. Things he's probably said many times He's reminding these believers of things that are important. And they are important. Because I, th I think there are the beautiful, magnificent, transcendent truths that we preach, we believe in, we hold to, and we talk about. But there are also the practical realities of it. And unless you get to the practical realities of your Christianity, you're always going to be talking in the clouds. 
you know, it's all about God, about Jesus, about these things, and it has no practical relevance to you. My belief is that everything God writes to us has relevance of some kind, practical relevance and help to us. And so we get into some of these things, and I want you to see here how important it is that we apply these truths and, and see them move forward in our lives in meaningful ways. So the title of this message is really asking a question. What is our contribution? Well, to what? What, what is our contribution to what? Well, to the, to the cause of Christ, to the gospel, the good news. What is our contribution to this wonderful message of the resurrection? Because he has called every one of us to contribute. We talked about that in chapter 12, where we see ourselves as a family, as a body, and every single individual should be contributing to the health of the family. We're going to get into more of these as he works through this. So what is our contribution, and I would say this collectively, Valley family, and then what is your contribution? What, I want you to think in, in these terms, as a group and it, you as a person, what is your contribution to this glorious, magnificent message of the resurrection? So this morning what I want to do is work through these few verses, just from verses 1 through 4, and I've broken it down into six manageable questions. So when we have this uh, first beginning of, of verse 1, it says, now concerning. <laughs> that sounds like, okay, uh, now concerning. This is the sixth time he uses this phrase, now concerning. And he's making reference to a question they have asked. And we don't have a record of that because we don't have all of the letters that were circulated from churches to Paul or Paul to the churches. Uh, some are even mentioned that these other letters are out there. Uh, we have preserved divinely by God certain ones. We call the inspired, inerrant, preserved Word of God for us today. But there are other, other letters too. So apparently <clears throat> they had fired a lot of questions to Paul because they were having conflicts with each other. <laughs> so we're going to ask Paul, what is he going to say? So this is something that they had asked. So we'll break this down into these questions. The first one, <clears throat> who is Paul speaking to? And he says this in verse 2, each of you. I've made this reference many times that we, we have to look at text, what it says, context, what it means, and then application. Always God has something for us to learn um, from this. So when he says each of you, many times in the New Testament, <clears throat> throughout the Bible, when we use the word, <clears throat> excuse me, you, we mean plural, you all. But here he's, he's stating that I'm speaking to you all, but I'm also speaking to you individually. So you all, the family, the body, and you in particular as, as you connect with that body. Both of those are important. And I think these are the lenses we need to read Scripture with. In other words, it's not all about me, but it is to me. 
It, this involves other people and is how I relate to them. So specifically to Corinthian believers living in first century Greece, written by Paul as he's in Ephesus, sending this in the form of a letter. And he's speaking to them as a community. So secondly, he asks this question, or answers the question, what is this about? He says in verse 1, concerning the collection for the saints. Concerning the collection or the offering for the saints. Now, you did not know that you were in such a treat that this is the day you show up at church to hear me preach about money. Well, <clears throat> it's the next verse. And you know me, it's like I probably wouldn't preach on a lot of things except that's the next verse. And it does have importance and relevance to us. I'm, I'm be a little bit facetious with that. What is this about concerning the collection for the saints? Now, when we, we hear this in offering or the take collecting of an offering, um, we don't do that like pass the plate usually here. We have a box in the back and people give online. But um, concerning gathering funds for the saints. Who are the saints? Now, I don't usually like using that word to describe myself. I'm a saint. Um, probably most of us don't feel that way, but a saint is anybody who has been made holy. It means made holy. And the truth is, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, God has made you holy. You have a holy standing in Him. You are spotless in your position. Now, in your daily practice, we don't, we don't fulfill that holiness so uh, perfectly. The perfect part will come when we get to heaven, which chapter 15 talked about. So the saints, they're gathering a collection for and supporting, specifically this is talking about monetary or money, to be gathered up, stored up, and then delivered to saints or other believers in other places. You'll remember when he was talking to the church in Galatia uh, about all these churches giving offerings for those being persecuted and suffering in Jerusalem. And Paul was one of those uh, emissaries that went and helped take that to them. So in those days, there are a couple things that were facing the church in Jerusalem. One was incredible persecution. So you had persecution from the Romans, you had persecution from the Jews, uh, religious leaders, and there was also a famine and the famine had just decimated the land. So people uh, were, were really suffering. And I think suffering just living there, but also when you're a believer in Christ, living in a place that is persecuting Christians, there are many other ways. And so it would be hard to get goods and food and find places to live and to have jobs. Many, and I know this is hard for us to comprehend, but many places in the world today, if you claim to be a Christian, you lose your family relationships, you lose your education, you lose your job. And I, I've seen this, I've talked to people that they know this, that when they put their faith and trust in Christ and make that declaration, their family will cut them off. They will, they will pull them out of the university and they will not be hired by people that they would be hired by. So we, we live in a much more comfortable society when it comes to these types of things. And so, um, 
and, and we, we remember, remember this too, as the writer of Hebrews says, remember those that are in bonds as bound with them. People imprisoned, people being persecuted, people starving and suffering. And so Paul is saying, be thinking of the larger picture. And since the church, obviously, in Corinth has capacity, they have capacity as a group and individually to be able to help. Uh, they don't have the same suffering, so let's work together to help advance the gospel. So this is, this is what he is speaking about, about the collection of the saints and the money to be sent. Throughout history, uh, and I want us to see this too, that it's, that it's not just a, a practical thing, because it makes sense practically, that we, we gather up what we have and we help those who are suffering, it's a form of worship. Remember how when, when Jesus said, you, you've give, given a cup of cold water to these, you, you've done it to me? And giving has been one part of our worship. Of course, I would describe uh, all of life worship. Worship is when you, you are affirming God and what you do with your time, your energy, your money, and everything. And, and money is just, it's one piece of it. And worship should not be what we do on Sunday. I think we, we tend to talk about the worship service, and we do worship collectively, but individually we should be worshiping God all week long in every aspect of life and living. So what's the money for? Um, you say, well, God, God's not broke. We know that, right? Um, and he doesn't need anything. I've heard many Christians say to me, God needs you to do this. God does not need anything. <laughs> uh, he is complete and fulfilled and satisfied and content in himself. So when he's talking about this money being used in these ways, it's not because God needs it. And I think a lot of times people feel that, well, I'm doing this because um, God can't get the job done without, without it. And that's really not true. It's, it's, it's God's way. I want you to see this. One, it, it helps us worship, but it's God's way of carrying out his plan of the gospel. God has a means and a way on, on a ground level, practical way. So we talk about the overarching, transcendent truth of Jesus came into this world, he lived a perfect life, he suffered and died on a cross, was buried, rose again on the third day, offers eternal life. That's the transcendent truth. But what, what gives this traction? What gives this mobility for this message to get to people? And I think we need to understand that part of it, too. It doesn't sound as exciting, maybe, but, but it, is, it is necessary to be able to accomplish for, for this. So he wants every believer, um, he speaks to every person, and he wants every believer to participate in this for the purpose. And I'm going to give you the following reasons. Why do we give? One, you know, we're, we're talking about... Um, God telling, instructing us to. But let me, let me just kind of list these. First of all, and I think the most important part of why we worship in the giving of our finances is to direct our hearts in the right place. 
Because what and how we give reflects our heart and it directs our heart. So what you do with your money uh, is going to show something about how you're wired and what's important to you. Now, how do we know this? Well, Jesus taught it. So we go back to what he says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So where you're spending your money tells you something about what's going on here. And when you choose to spend your money on something, your heart will follow that. So I think that's the most important part of it. You think about all the pragmatic things, uh, the effects upon your life, upon others, about getting things done. I think our greatest purpose in existence on the face of this earth is worship. We are created to worship. As I've shared before, uh, one author de uh, defined worship as when all that I am responds rightly to all that he is. When all that I am responds rightly to all that he is. And that takes some submission to him. So I'd, I'd say that's the first part of uh, the reason why money is important to where we are with our worship. Secondly, to take care of priests, pastors, evangelists, and so forth. Now typically, in the Levitical system in the Old Testament, and they were under the law, they, they gave their 10%. Is actually when you added up all the different uh, tithes they gave, it was about 23% of their income. <laughs> but you have to recognize it was also their government. So uh, you'd probably add for us, it, to be fair, because you say, we're going to get 23% to the church. Now it's because their religion was their government as well. So, but they just flat out gave that. That was what they're required to do. Even if you go back before uh, the Levitical priest, you have Abraham before the law, before any of that, when he met Melchizedek. Uh, you'll remember that name. Can't spell it, but you can remember Melchizedek. Uh, and it says he was a priest. Actually, I feel it was a type of Christ, a visible appearance type of Christ. And it says that he paid him a tithe. In other words, he gave his 10% to, to Melchizedek, the priest. So, why did they do this? It's interesting that, that priests, and I'm, I'm reading through, because I kind of, I'm not a priest, but I kind of liken myself into God's work and, you know, separated and said, now when you move into the promised land, the priests don't get any of it. I thought, that's a bummer. Because, you know, you're kind of thinking, oh, we're going into the promised land, land flowing of milk and honey, and, and all this land, and the priests, you, you don't get any land. And the Lord says, I am your reward. Okay. <laughs> we can argue with that. But he wanted the priests to be totally focused on what they were to do. To, to help intercede with the people and God. To help people. To encourage people. To support people. To help them resolve their problems. Priests had a, a busy job. A busy work. And so, if you're going into the priesthood, you start out at about at 20 years of age, you start going to school. And you go through about 10 years of schooling, and at 30, from 30 to 50, you're in the priesthood. And then in, at 50, you become a sage, you become a mentor, you become a discipler, so to speak. So that's kind of how that, that worked. And the people in Israel, in their financial contributions, 
help them to be able to do that. So if you move into the New Testament, we talk about pastors. We do that similarly here as well. Uh, our church provides giving, and part of that, um, I hope directs your heart toward God, part of that will help. We have two pastors, and uh, it allows us not to work six days of the week. We only work one day a week. So. <laughs> I've, had, I've had kids say that to me. Boy, it must be nice to be a pastor. You only work one day a week. Uh, it, it does allow us to be totally committed to ministry. Now, I know that there are people, preachers out there that are in it for the money, but I've, I've not run across those. Most everybody I know that's a friend of mine that has gone into ministry is not thinking about, oh man, this is, make a lot of money. We do it because it's a calling. And many, many pastors around the world, and I would probably say most, are bivocational. They, they don't have this privilege, okay? Uh, so we feel blessed to do that. Some people, they work a, a job, maybe another job, and then they do that as well. So when you, you talk about persecuted countries, um, foreign countries, and even here in the U.S., uh, um, I was talking to my friend who helps train uh, guys up in nor northern Wyoming. And most of these guys are running a business, got a job, and preaching as well. But ideally, and this is what Paul said, Paul was a tent maker. He, he, was, he was a skilled tent maker. And what he said is, I, I can do that. I can do that. I'd rather not do that. Um, I'd rather give myself to preaching, teaching, discipling, praying, doing the work of the ministry. But if I have to, I'll do that. And I think that's the, that's the attitude all of us should have. So it directs our heart. It takes care of pastors. It's also used to send missionaries. Remember when the church decided initially to send Paul and Barnabas with the gospel to the ends of the earth. In fact, Paul's idea was we're going to go all the way to Spain. Well, who's going to finance that? And, and so that's when the church starts gathering funds to help them to be able to do that because it really would be impossible unless they had some backing. And I liken that to our global partners. We, we've got several global partner families that are ministering away from here that would not be able to do that if we didn't give them financial support. And when the Lord says go to the ends of the earth with the gospel, he doesn't mean that literally we all stand up and march out the door. But we're part of making that happen. So when we have a Cherith Hunt who's sitting out here minding her own business in our church finally feel called to go to Zambia to work with the deaf, She's the one that goes, and then we're able to help support her. We support her in prayer, but we also support her financially. And this is what he's talking about here. You need to be able to support financially. Uh, this last, what was it, last year, we, uh, she had some medical bills mounting up, and then she doesn't have the money for it. And, and we um, took up an offering, I think it was over $15,000, um, to help pay, more than pay that off. I mean, wasn't that exciting? I mean, that, that's what we can do. Some of you, some of your kids, some of us may go to the ends of the earth. But all of us, all of us have a part. That's why when he says each of you, we all have a part in the bigger picture of that process. Number four, caring for the suffering and persecuted church, as in Jerusalem, as I mentioned. Uh, five would be caring for the poor, the widows, and the orphans. 
So this is what Christ cares about. It's more challenging for us living in Lafayette, living in Boulder County, living in Jefferson County, or Weld County. Um, we don't. We see people on the street um, asking for money, but but it's not like most places in the world. So it's harder to get our minds around that. But what he's saying is, I, the church, not the government. The church needs to, to recognize the needs around them, particularly of those that are vulnerable. So when you've got little kids, they don't have parents, you've got um, widows and so forth, or the poor, to take care of them. Now what's not on here is building a church building. <laughs> so, um, But I do think you go back to the Old Testament, they gathered funds, they built a tabernacle, that was their movable tent as they were going through the wilderness, and then they gathered funds, they built a temple. Now, in the New Testament church, we don't find buildings for the first 300 years of the church, partly because they were persecuted. And then when Constantine comes around in about 325, um, all of a sudden he makes the official Roman religion Christianity and takes all of the big monumental buildings pagan temples and turns them into churches. That's where you start getting your stained glass windows and your spires and your all these fancy things. And I don't know if that really helped Christianity. I think the strongest, most effective churches in the world consistently are the ones that are persecuted. Now we don't ask for that. But I think when the church has money, lots of money and lots of uh, buildings and, and all the glitz and, and that sort of thing, you can kind of lose why we're here. So, but I think that having a building is helpful. We rent this building. Aren't you thankful for this building? Uh, I'm thankful for this building. God's, I would like to have our own building so we could have it for the rest of the week, but I, I don't think that that is absolutely critical. It would be nice. It would be nice if someone gave us a building and then we could put all our money into other things. That's, what, that's how I'm praying. <laughs> and we have enough room to be a healthy, vibrant church. How big? Big enough to reproduce. We don't need to be, get bigger and bigger and bigger. We need to be big enough to reproduce, helping other churches getting planted. I think that's, that's the New Testament way. It's not about building a big business. So I've shared that, those things with you before. So now you think about this, with money giving to the church, what about abuses? I know televangelists, people on TV, on the radio, um, and, and you know, it, it makes those of us that are in ministry just kinda go, oh, you know, it's frustrating. But think about this, every good thing that God gives can be abused, right? Every good gift God gives us can be abused, whether it's food or drink or relationships. So let's not let your bad experience with a pastor or a church or a group of people say, I'm not going anymore, or I'm not, I'm not doing, or I'm not giving anymore. You just may give more carefully <laughs> and read the fine print. 
Um, there, are, there are abuses, and we need to recognize that. And that's part of why when we come down to verse 4, 3 and 4, where Paul says, And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Notice how the accountability there? I love this. So this isn't just collect a bunch of money and whoever can take it. No, it's like an accredited letter going with the money, with, with the representatives, and Paul may join them to take it there. So we want to be very, very responsible with what is taken in. I think that's important for the church to do. This is, this is God's. All money is God's money. Um, it's not just what we give. All money is God's money, but we need to be good stewards of those collections. And the church needs to be accountable. So, third question, and I'll try to move through these quickly. Uh, when is this supposed to happen? On the first day of the week, um, which is Sunday, which is today, which is different than the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the seventh day, which is Saturday. And that's what is um, in creation that God rested the Sabbath, Sabbath day, not to, because he was tired, but he. God sat back to, to glory in his creation, and he gives us the Sabbath day for us to rest and to refresh and to rejuvenate and to celebrate and to joy. Um, it's, not, it's not designed so you can't go swimming. I don't any of you grew up that way where you, that's on Sunday, we can't play baseball or go swimming. <laughs> I thought, where did they get that? But because, because actually the Sabbath designed is for you not to do your regular work but to enjoy the day and worship God, praise God, uh, exalt him, spend time with your family, uh, not a lot of time in the kitchen cooking, but you can enjoy wonderful food and enjoy that day. That day is set aside. And I think that, that there is a Sabbath principle woven into creation that when you violate it, you pay a price. God made us to need rest, physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. He made us to need rest. And when we, you know, do this 24-7, working, 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 we pay a price. And, and so I think that principle is, is always there. But when we come to the New Testament, now the church is meeting not on Saturday, because I do think that on Saturday the Sabbath, they still, many of the Jews still observed the Sabbath. But now they're meeting on Sunday. Now for us, you get up Sunday and um, you go to church Sunday morning. You know, you put on your Sunday clothes, which we, you know, I mean, maybe a little nicer shirt or something. I don't know. Um, but back in the day, that was a work day. Sunday was not a day off. Everybody worked on Sunday. Sabbath for the Jews and the Romans, they worked every day. <laughs> the Greeks, they worked every day. But for the early church, um, and I, you say, when did they meet? I think, well, they met on, it says they met on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day, Sunday. But if they had jobs, <laughs> they were working. So they probably showed up and they're farm clothes or their milling clothes or, you know, people just kind of came from, it's like after work or before work, hey, we show up and we sing and praise God and pray and worship and give and go to work. 
That was, that was the way it was for them. I think that when, when Christianity became under the Roman, uh, Roman rule, became uh, a, an institution, and in Europe became a culture, um, now you start having, uh, anybody remember the blue laws in the South? Anybody, you know, it's, I'm kind of dating myself, you know, story, it used to bug me, I think, now it's just Chick-fil-A. You know, Chick-fil-A's closed. And that's, that's usually the only day I want to go get it. Um, but, but back in the day, everything was closed on Sunday. So it kind of got woven into the culture. But that's, that's not the way it was in the early church. But the Lord's Day for the believers was, was important because it was a time for them to gather and encourage, primarily to encourage each other. People ask me, why do we meet? Well, there, there are a lot of reasons we meet, but I think the main one is to providing that encouragement uh, to one another. So current trends in the American church, and I think we've seen that, is the blue laws have gone away. Uh, we've seen, you know, you'll remember back when, of course, they always had the NFL on Sunday, um, baseball games on Sunday, but you never find Little League or kids games or things on Sunday. Not, it just wasn't that way. Now, slowly over time, our culture's changed. So we adapt to that. We still want to enjoy those things in life. And um, I'm, I'm thinking back now, it's been like 47 years since I started preaching, uh, which is, you know, you do the math, it's whatever you come up with, it's, it's a big number. But I've <laughs> been doing that a long time, watching to see how people being in church has kind of slowly died down. Um, uh, used to be that almost every, you know, I think it was probably three out of four people go to church. Now it's, it's probably a fourth of our population. And even those that I would say are faithful, I read a statistic the other day that says people that are faithful churchgoers, that means one out of five Sundays. So I would say it would be the reverse for it was when I got started in ministry. People pretty much, they're there every week. It, it's not, you don't want to have, you know, I got a pen. I got a pen for this week, and so I've got my Sunday school pen. I haven't missed a Sunday. Because then you get into legalism, and that's, that's a, that is not where we want to go on this. But faithfulness is not legalism. And I think there's, there's an intention because you need, you need it, and the people around you need it. And it is awkward. It's awkward to talk about money. It's awkward to talk about church attendance. We want the right motive. Because that, that's the key in all of it. And that it, I think the best way to say it, it is the regular pattern, the regular habit. You know what? You're going on vacation. You've got, you know, you're going out to spend time with your family. Those are reasonable things. But I'm saying it should be the regular, consistent pattern of our lives to be meeting together. I think that's, that's the intent of what is being said. So I think technology has made it easier to listen to sermons, listen to music. And so you can get fed that way. Um, I think that uh, having many churches, particularly in the South, you got a church on every corner. So if you don't like that one, you can go to that one. If you don't like that one, you can go to that one. So people never really, it's harder for people to really to settle in. 
in Corinth, there's one church. So, <laughs> you know what? If you don't like it, you, gotta, you probably got to go get things resolved. And so now it's, it's easy to float around. It's easy to get online. And, and we, miss, we miss what I think is the most important part of why we gather. It is the community. It is, it is the relational part. Um, guaranteed you can hear better sermons, um, better music, uh, you know, read better books of things, you know. But you're not going to have that relational encouragement and support that, that you need. And, and this is what he is saying. So, fourthly, uh, where is this to happen? And, uh, of course, the Old Testament, we go from Abraham offering altars, Moses with a tabernacle, uh, eventually da uh, David's son Solomon building the temple. In the New Testament, uh, first 300 years, and I would say today, uh, Lord's Day Sunday, 2022, most churches are probably meeting in homes or places of business. And there's smaller gatherings than this, much smaller, across the board. We tend to think of the big brick steepled building, but most gatherings are like this. And they're, they're in wherever you can be. In fact, in, in the early days of the church, it says they met daily. Well, it wasn't like everybody daily, but daily we're getting together for I don't know if they did coffee back then. They must have, don't you think? It'll be in heaven too. But, but <laughs> you know, they're gathering here, they're gathering at this person's house, or they call it breaking bread. Um, so, so during the week, everybody is getting together from time to time in homes. But then on the Lord's Day, they would find some place where they could be together, all of them together. And I think typically outdoor, it'd be an outdoor situation, um, Temple Square. Um, maybe some remote place on the hillside, but it was a gathering of the body. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Notice love and good works. So stirring you up to love, which produces good works. He says, don't neglect meeting together as the habit of some is. But encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, number five, uh, how should it be done? It, um, how how do we worship on Sunday? And I think I'm, I'm just going to hit these quickly. These are New Testament teaching. We we meet together to preach the word, and and teach the word. But preaching is different than teaching. Uh, preaching is calling people to action. Preaching is different than informing, instructing. Preaching is calling people to repentance, to confession, to obedience. <laughs> it, is, it is challenging them. And it, it is um, really trying to move people to take steps forward in their Christian faith. And this is typically what Paul was doing. It's very distinct. When he says to Timothy, preach the word. Don't do it in fear. Um, be, be ready to do that constantly. Uh, praying together, praising and singing, giving thanks together. It is fellowship and encouragement, and it is celebrating the Lord's Supper and baptism. So, normal giving, he describes, and I think that you go Christ, Paul, um, 
you go through 2 Corinthians, and let me just give you some highlights on this. What should your giving look like? And this is not Matt. Okay, Matt told us that we need to do this. This is, this is what the scriptures teach about how we should give. That's my first part. And you should give regularly and consistently. You give regularly. It says on every, it says every one every week. Now, I think that there's probably room to when you get paid and so forth. So I think that this principle here is, is regularly. Number two is first fruits. What part of your paycheck do you give to God? The first part. I mean, all through Scripture, giving is always the first part. Why is that? Because I think it, it sets in order what is priority of your life. It is an act of worship. And if you wait until what's left over, I can promise you, because I haven't really tried that, but <laughs> I know how it would work. There would be nothing left over. So you start there and as your first fruits. And it's proportionately. In the Old Testament, it was always 10%. That was, and before the law, 10% the law, 10% with Abraham, and then reiterated in Hebrews, 10% of your income. Now, we are not under the law. We're not under the law. And so I, I hesitate to say you ought to give 10%, but you should give proportionately. When I start to think through it, I have a hard time saying, well, in the Old Testament, we gave 10%, but in the New Testament, we're going to lower the standard. I would say, if anything, and they come to the New Testament, the standard is greater love, greater commitment to Christ. But not to be bound by that. Because Jesus said to some, give all. Uh, the widow who gave all that she had. Um, so I think that, but this is what you establish. I, I think this is a great thing for you as a family to sit down and talk about too. Um, what are we, how are we going to do this? So proportionately and generously. Um, by the way, the Rizzo family was here a couple weeks ago. I think we gave $2,500 in that offering. Uh, $15,000 to Cherith. I mean, this church is a good giving church um, as a whole. I don't know what individuals give. Um, I just know what we give as a whole. This church is a good giving church. So this sermon is not an appeal for more money. <laughs> this, this sermon is an appeal to biblical giving for us as a whole and for you as an individual. Does that make sense? And I think you believe me on that. I think you know me well enough to believe me on that. Generously, cheerfully. Um, I remember when I announced that we got 15000 for Cherith, everybody just <laughs> applauding. Yeah. You know, it's exciting. Uh, that's so much more fun than a building program, isn't it? Um, and to give humbly. We're not boasting about, like the Pharisees, about what we're giving. We just delight in it. Um, so, these are the principles. There's also a special needs giving of being sacrificial and spontaneously, which we find throughout Scripture when people are already giving regularly, but something comes up. There's a need, and you give, and maybe you go, go without a few lattes <laughs> and, or something that you were going to go buy, and you do something for someone else, and you do it in a generous way. 
So finally, we come to why do we do it, which I think is the biggest question. Why do we give? What's the motive? What's the heart? And I see three, there are a lot more than these, but I'm just going to give three reasons. One, obedience. It's probably good enough. I mean, he commands it. He's, he says, I want you, um, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. First day of the week, and I mean, obedience. Um, duty. Second reason might be personal benefit. Because when you do, you ever heard the expression, you can't outgive God? I believe that. Um, personal benefit, um, a desire for God to bless you. Now, it is true that God blesses you because in Proverbs 3 it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, and then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. I mean, I could go scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture that promise you if you learn to give the way God says to give, you will never lack a thing. Now, if that's your motive, I don't know if that's the purest motive because it's kind of selfish. <laughs> um, I think it's nice that we have that promise. I think that the purest and best motive is a genuine love for God. I love you, Lord. I worship you, Lord. I give regularly, systematically, generously, um, joyfully to you. Uh, sacrificially at times, spontaneously at times, and Lord, I do this because I love you. That's always the best motive for anything. And my prayer is for Valley Community to Church, Valley Community Church to give and worship financially and every other resource we have in ways that express our love to God. That's it. Not out of constraint, not out of pressure, not out of fear if I don't give, or not out of just obedience, do the right thing. That's your backup plan. <laughs> so I go back to my, my son. What do, I, what do I teach my son? And I'll, I'll end with this. And I, 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 have, I have a friend who lives in a, another state, and he's my age, and he's a businessman. He's been a very successful businessman. And so what, he's, what he did, I, you might probably couldn't do. But let me just tell you what he did. And he was sharing me with us this last week. We work with this, uh, several of these young people that have decided to go into really, really tough areas with the gospel. And so they're getting training, and they're getting prepared, and they're going to get launched into um, different cultures, languages to share the gospel. Say so seven, seven of these young adults, probably mid-20s. And so, about two weeks ago, he took $1,000, put it in an envelope, and gave each one of these seven young people $1,000. Now, none of them are going into a work where they're going to be making money, right? And he said, I, I want you, this is a gift. This is a gift I'm giving to you. And I want you to pray about how you can give it away to advance the love of Christ. And, and I thought, wow. And he said, because I want you to learn the joy of giving. 
Now, my first thought was, I couldn't afford that. But you know, you could probably do it with $100 or $10, couldn't you? And I thought, here's a guy that is, is, is making them think about money. $1,000 is a lot of money. But what can I do to give that away that, that helps move the gospel forward? So we have the transcendent truth of last week. We have the practical relevance of how we function as a body together. And it's exciting to be a part of it, isn't it? When we can give like helping Cherith or helping the Rizzos or, or helping the poor or someone else to advance the message of the gospel, which is expressed in the love that he's given to us. So let's bow our heads. We'll close in prayer. Um, I don't know how this message hit you. I know for me, it, it just kind of put a challenge back in there to be thinking through in practical ways of how I worship God in my giving. So my prayer for Valley Community Church is that we become more and more pleasing to God in how we give as a whole, and that each individual person here would be pleasing to God in how they give as a person or as a family. Father, thank you so much, even for passages we read that may seem not to be so glorious, but they're practical and necessary. And this church in Corinth ended up helping so many people when they responded to Paul's challenge. Uh, people in Jerusalem and around the world who were going through things. Help us to be like that, Lord. Help us to see the bigger picture and to be committed, Lord, um, our contribution to your glorious work. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.